All right. Good morning, church. Thank you for joining us on live stream today. Oops. All right. Well, we are now in our 23rd week in the book of Revelation. Uh, We actually started this series way back in September 2019, believe it or not. And we've, of course, taken some breaks here and there. Um, But we are finally nearing the home stretch. We've got four chapters left left in this book, so I'm excited uh, to finally uh, make it to the end. We've got a few more weeks left, but we're getting close. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, I encourage you to turn with with me now to uh, Revelation 19, chapter 19. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much uh, for your faithfulness, for your presence with us this morning, and we just want to invite invite your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, Lord, uh, to speak to us. We pray that you would open us up to receive whatever it is that you want to tell us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... If you remember where we left off last week in chapter 18, John just had a vision of the fall of Babylon. We actually didn't read that passage. We only read part of chapter 17 because it's a long passage. But in chapter 18, it describes the fall of Babylon. And I explained last week that Babylon had actually already fallen long before Revelation was written. It was an evil empire in the Old Testament. And so when John talks about Babylon, it doesn't just represent literal Babylon, it is a symbol for evil empire in general collapsing. And the description in chapter 18 of the fall of Babylon is a a description of the inevitable collapse of any evil empire that tries to build itself on injustice, on lies, on violence, and on the persecution of God's people. Right? Now, Chapter 19 starts off with this multitude in heaven celebrating the fall of Babylon. Uh, Let's pick it up in uh, verse 6. Chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Now if you are here... Last week, hopefully you remember that we looked at the vision of the prostitute of Babylon. And we talked about how the vision of the prostitute represents the fact that the political powers of this world often try to seduce us to worship them. Uh, They try to seduce us to put, put our hope and trust in them and look to them for salvation. But what they offer, ultimately, is a transactional kind of relationship. It is a relationship of using and being used. And ultimately, that kind of relationship does not satisfy. But here, we're given the alternative to the prostitute of Babylon, which is the marriage of the Lamb with Jesus. Unlike the things of this world, which tempt us to worship 
them. Jesus gives us something other than a transactional relationship. Jesus gives us a covenant relationship, a marriage kind of relationship, one that is built on love, on giving, on faithfulness, and commitment. And I hope this doesn't sound cheesy to you, but I'm going to say it because I believe that it's true. History is a love story. It is a love story between creator and creation. And all of history is going to culminate in something that is similar to a wedding celebration, this joyous union of God with his creation. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 10. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, a lot of commentators think that the reason this was included uh, in the vision is because at the time, there was a trend of worshiping angels. And so this would correct that. This would be a reminder. You should really be worshiping Jesus and Jesus alone, and any good angel isn't going to want you to worship him. So don't get caught up in angel worship. But something else I want us to notice is the last thing that the angel says there. He says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What, what is that all about? Well, what he is saying is that if a prophecy is truly inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is going to talk about Jesus. And it is going to say the kinds of things that Jesus said. It is going to be faithful to his testimony. So it's going to be about Jesus, and it's going to talk about the kinds of things that Jesus talked about. And I think this is a very uh, important reminder for us to have. Because we live in a time where there's a lot of self-proclaimed prophets out there. If you go looking for them, you can find them. And the internet makes it uh, easy for them to uh, share their, their prophecies. Um, I've, I've noticed that many of these self-proclaimed prophets have very large audiences, certainly far larger than I do, and uh, their stuff gets shared all over the internet, and they make very bold claims about you know, what's going to happen in American politics and what's going to happen in global politics and all that kind of thing. And when evaluating these sorts of things, we have to keep in mind the spirit of true prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. A true prophet is somebody who talks about Jesus, who talks about the cross, who talks about the kinds of things that we read in the Sermon on the Mount. And if what you're hearing from a self-proclaimed prophet has very little to do with that kind of thing, be careful. Be discerning. It might not actually be the true spirit of prophecy. Okay? All right. Let's keep reading verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. All right, now, if you have been following this series at all, you probably know that the most repeated refrain that I have said over and over again is, Revelation is a highly symbolic book, right? You're probably getting tired of hearing me say that. It is a series of visions that depict spiritual realities. And to some extent, pretty much Every person who studies Revelation seriously acknowledges this. Because I don't know anybody who believes that Jesus is literally a lamb. Right? I don't know anybody who believes that there is literally going to be a ten-horned monster that rises up out of the ocean. Uh, I don't know anybody who literally believes that part of Jesus' return is going to involve a grain harvest. Uh, I don't know anyone who literally believes that people are going to get crushed in a giant wine press. I don't know anybody who literally uh, believes that God's judgment is going to involve drinking a cup of wine. Right? But Revelation says all these things. And most people recognize, uh, when they're studying Revelation, that taking the text seriously doesn't mean believing that all these things will literally happen the way they're described, right? But that these things depict spiritual realities, okay? In order to respect the text, we have to recognize the genre in which it's written, which is this visionary, apocalyptic genre that is highly symbolic. We have to respect the text for what it is, okay? Now, that said, I think that one mistake we often make with Revelation is we recognize that parts of these visions, or some of these visions, are symbolic, but we often want to insist that other parts of the visions are completely literal. And there's no real rubric for how people are deciding uh, which is which. And what I want to suggest is that when we read Revelation, we really should apply this idea that the whole thing at least all the vision parts of it, are highly symbolic. And we, we should, if we're going to appreciate it for what it is really saying, it's important to try to apply that lens as we, as we read it, okay? Um, you know, there are some people who think that if you're going to take Revelation seriously, then you must believe that history is going to culminate in this giant war in the Middle East, uh, and that Jesus is going to lead a literal charge 
on this field in the Middle East. He's going to be riding a, a white horse, and he is literally going to slaughter uh, all the people who oppose them. And then the birds are literally going to come and gorge themselves on the fallen. And, you know, if that is the way that Jesus gets things done, well, I'm sure that's the best way to get it done. But what I want to propose this morning is that there is another way of understanding this that takes more into account the symbolic nature of Revelation. And in a moment, I'm going to try to explain uh, what this passage could mean if we're looking at it through that more symbolic lens. But before we do that, I just want us all to acknowledge what we should all be able to agree on, okay, whether we see this as more of a symbolic vision or whether we see it as so literal that if we had a videotape of the future, this is exactly what it would look like, okay, or if we fall somewhere in between. Wherever we fall on that spectrum, this is what we should all be able to agree on. Okay, ready? This passage teaches us that Jesus wins, right? Jesus wins. Nothing and no one is more powerful than Jesus. He is unstoppable. He is unconquerable. You try to kill him, he comes back. And if you set yourself in opposition to Jesus and to the way of Jesus, that will not go well for you. You will fall. Jesus wins. And we should all be able to agree on that, no matter how symbolic we think this vision is, right? And as I said, okay, there are plenty of people who read this and they conclude that the way Jesus will win is through military conquest. That in the end, that is how it's going to work. And as I said, maybe that is the way Jesus is going to do it. And if he does it that way, I trust that that is the best way to get the job done. But let's consider a more symbolic way of understanding this passage, okay? There's a couple details in this vision that are easy to miss... And when we pay attention to them, they, they open up a new way of understanding what's going on. So, first detail to notice. Uh, Jesus is described as wearing a bloodied robe. A bloodied robe. Now, at first glance, that might just seem like a description of somebody who's been slaughtering people, right? If you've been slaughtering people, well, good chance your robe is going to get bloody. But do you notice his robe is bloody before the battle has even started. No battle has taken place yet. He is coming into the battle, and he is already bloody. Now, why would that be? Well, what many people think is that this is not the blood of people that Jesus has been killing, but that this is Jesus' own blood. This is the blood that he shed for our redemption on the cross. And there's a lot of reasons to lean towards that interpretation of this. Uh, for example, there has already been uh, a description in Revelation of those who are redeemed by God as having their, their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. Right? So we already have this precedent of the blood of the Lamb on robes. Um, and there's, okay, there's quite a few more reasons. I'm not even going to be able to cover all of them. But couple things to consider, okay? The symbol that we see for Jesus the most throughout Revelation is the symbol of a slain lamb. In fact, 28 times throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus is described as a lamb. 
Uh, way back in chapter 4 and 5, John had a vision of the heavenly throne room. And he was told, the Lion of Judah has conquered. But when John then goes and looks at God's heavenly throne, he doesn't see a lion on it. He sees a slain lamb on it. And we cannot understate the significance of that. Okay, If somebody says to you, look, a lion, and then you look and there's a lamb, that's funny, right? There's something about that that's supposed to strike you, right? And, and as a reader of Revelation, that should strike us. There's, there's, the contrast there is very significant. What is the significance of that contrast? What that contrast tells us is that the way that God conquers is not the way that human beings expect. Okay, we expect God or anyone to conquer through what we might call lion power, violence, force, dominance, right? But the fact that this slain lamb is on the throne indicates that the way that God conquers is not the way we expect. He conquers through sacrificial love, okay? The kind of love that we see reflected and revealed uh, through the cross. And we see evidence of this throughout the Gospels too, right? What does Jesus tell his disciples? Does he tell his disciples, take up arms, fight against Rome, destroy the infidel? Does he say anything like that? No, right? Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek. He consistently has this ethic of nonviolence for his disciples. Uh, you might remember that when the authorities come to arrest Jesus, Peter gets all fired up and he uh, takes his sword and he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And Jesus does not go, you, way to go, Peter, good job. No. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, put your sword back in its place for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Okay, which is interesting. It's not like Jesus just says, no, no, Peter, right now, I know you don't want me to do this, but I'm going to have to go to the cross to fulfill the scriptures. I mean, he does say that, but he specifically says, all who draw the sword will die by the sword. In other words, this is not a method that I endorse, right? This is not the way that the kingdom of God works. This is not the way we're going to get the job done. Also, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus has been arrested and he's standing before Pontius Pilate, he says something very interesting. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Now, many of us hear Jesus' words there, my kingdom is not of this world, and what we hear is my kingdom exists off in some unseen dimension. But what I want to suggest is what Jesus is saying here is something different than that, that what he's saying is my kingdom is not of this world in the sense that my kingdom does not work the way worldly kingdoms work. Worldly empires defend and build themselves with violence, right? But Jesus says, no, no, this is actually not the way the kingdom of God is going to work. If it worked the way the kingdoms of this world work, well then, of course, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. That's what any self-respecting servants of a kingdom would do when people come against it, right? They take up arms. They fight back. But Jesus says, no, no, the way that my kingdom works, it's not worldly. It operates by a heavenly logic, not by a worldly logic. 
And yet, Jesus' kingdom is more powerful than any other kingdom. Jesus is the Lion of Judah, and that means he is a conqueror. That means that he wins. The Lion is a symbol of strength and of power. But the way that he conquers is not the way that people expect him to conquer. He conquers not through the way of the Lion, but through the way of the Lamb, through sacrificial love, the love that we see revealed on the cross. So, in light of all this, when Jesus shows up, with a robe that is already bloody on a white horse, I see a symbol of the blood that he has shed for us. And I see a reminder that the way that Jesus wages war, because he does wage war, but the way that Jesus wages war, the way that he defeats his enemies, is through the cross. It's through giving himself in love for the salvation of the world. That's how he wages war against evil. That's how he wins. All right, so that's the first detail that opens up this other way of understanding the vision. Second detail I want us to notice. Uh, We're told that Jesus kills the kings of the earth and their armies with what? A sword that comes out of his mouth. Now, I don't know a lot about swords. I've never done fencing or anything like that. I've never served in any kind of military. But I'm confident that that is not how literal swords work, right? So it seems clear to me that this passage cannot be talking about Jesus literally slicing and dicing people with a sword. What it's talking about is Jesus speaking truth, right? Jesus speaking the word of God. In a world full of lies, which this is, a world full of lies... It's interesting to me that the devil is described as the father of lies, right? And he's wielding a lot of influence right now. Uh, We live in a world full of lies. In this world of lies, Jesus speaks the truth. He speaks the word of God. With his words, he celebrates what is good, he identifies what is righteous, and he calls what is evil, evil, right? And... Remember, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, people were constantly amazed by the things that he said. He knew what to say and how to say it and when to say it. Uh, He spoke words that cut to the heart of the woman at the well. He spoke words that uh, cut to the heart of the rich young ruler. He spoke words that managed to silence the Pharisees when they came at him with their questions. He spoke Words that were like a sword. He he spoke the truth and he spoke it expertly. His words were like a sword then. His words still are like a sword today. And when he returns, the words that he speaks will be like a sword again. Plain, unvarnished truth that exposes the lies that evil thrives on. So, let me give a quick summary here, okay? Chapter 19, 11 through 21, what does it mean? We can all agree, it means Jesus wins. No doubt about that, right? Jesus wins, and those who persist in opposing him and his way of doing things, they will fall. Clearly telling us that, right? But the passage also gives us some hints that Jesus' methods for waging war don't always meet our expectations, 
And the two hints that it gives uh, are the blood on his robe, his robe already being bloody as he comes into battle, uh, which suggests that Jesus wages war through sacrificial, suffering love, the blood that he shed on the cross, right? And also the sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus wages war through speaking the truth, the plain, unvarnished truth, the word of God, which exposes lies and demolishes demonic strongholds. Contrary to what we might think, these things, these methods, are more powerful than any army, more powerful than any firearm, any literal weapon, any bomb. And what we need to recognize is that if we are going to follow the Lamb, these need to be our weapons of warfare for the kingdom of God as well. Sacrificial love, speaking the truth. That's how we combat the forces of evil. The Holy Spirit works powerfully through those things. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately, especially over the last couple of weeks, about how we live in a time of so much anger, so much division, so much misinformation. And in the midst of all that, there is this temptation to think that the way to deal with it is through hatred, through demonization, through violence, and maybe through our own form of propaganda for whatever side we align with, right? And by propaganda, I mean uh, information that tries to persuade people that isn't necessarily truthful, right? But what the world desperately needs right now are people of sacrificial love and people who speak the truth, right? The world needs people willing to show love that in some way reflects a little taste of the kind of love that Christ shows for us on the cross. The world needs people who are willing to speak truthfully, not tribally. The world needs people who can speak truth that cuts like a sword. And I don't mean by that words that hurt or harm people. But what I mean are words that are designed to cut through all the surface stuff and get to the heart issues that are underneath all of the anger, all of the hatred, all of the frustration. Jesus was very good at that. And as his followers, I pray that we can be too. What about the birds gorging themselves on the flesh of the fallen? What is that about? That's a grisly image, isn't it? Well, in those days, not receiving a proper burial was kind of like the ultimate insult to your memory. Obviously, today, it's still not something that um, we would take well. Um, proper burial is a sign of respect. And so I see in this grisly image a representation of the fact that resisting Christ, resisting the way of the Lamb, ends in humiliation. It ends in humiliation. If we worship the empires of this world, we're going to end up feeling humiliated in the end. Because as this tells us, the beast and the false prophet get thrown into the lake of fire, right? And if you remember from earlier in this series, I believe that the beast and the false prophet represent empire, evil empire, and the forces of propaganda that promote evil empire and call people to worship evil empire. And so what I see in this passage 
is a vision that represents the fact that all of these corrupt systems are eventually going to burn up. They're going to fall. They're going to collapse. They're going to be destroyed. And if we put our hope in them, then we're going to feel humiliated. If we refuse to recognize what is true, if we participate in lies, then eventually we will find ourselves humiliated. Because reality eventually asserts itself. Okay, you can only run from the truth for so long before reality says, mm, you can't hide anymore. The truth will be revealed. And when Jesus returns, there will be no hiding behind lies anymore. No escape. You know, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of telling a lie and then being found out. And there was no way to deny that you had lied. Right? If you've ever been in that position, you know how humiliating that can be. A day will come where there will be no hiding behind lies anymore. The truth will be inescapable. But the good news is that we don't have to be on the wrong side of this battle. We don't have to be eaten by the birds. But instead, we can eat at the wedding feast of the Lamb. There's a contrast there, right? We've been invited to that wedding feast. And we come to that table by giving our worship to Christ and Christ alone. And by following his example of sacrificial love. And by seeking to know and speak the truth. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this scary passage would inspire us this morning. Because it is a reminder uh, that you the good and righteous creator and judge, um, you're going to win. Evil will not win. Lord, I pray that we would, we would rest in that today, that we would find uh, comfort and encouragement through that. And Lord, I pray that like you, uh, we would wage war against the forces of evil uh, through sacrificial love and through speaking the truth in love. Lord, empower us, help us, to do that in a way that blesses uh, the world. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.